Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Now, as we head into the last week of the fast, I mentioned uh, last week that sometimes it can be easy when we get to the last week to get kind of this light at the end of the tunnel mentality. Uh, kind of countdown mode. Uh, only six more days till I can eat that thing that I haven't eaten in two weeks. Or I can go back to eating three meals a day or whatever. I want to uh, share a couple things for you to keep in mind that ought to help you get the most out of this last week. First of all, do you remember David Gulliford's message that I shared with you last week about how not only getting direction from God, but continuing to get direction from God. He can send you on a course, but we need to keep our ears open, our eyes open, our hearts open to course corrections, all right, uh, as we get further down the road. So allow God to speak to you about any changes he wants you to make during this last week. Maybe you can pray, uh, just just say, God, you want me to do something completely different? Maybe consider finishing the fast with a total fast for a day or two or maybe even more. If you've never done it, it can be really exciting and eye-opening. You'll learn a lot about yourself doing a total fast. Uh, but anyway, I also encourage you to be talking about the fast uh, during your small groups. Whatever else your small group is studying or doing or what your focus is, really this is the heart of small groups. Having conversations like this ought to be a part of, of your gathering. And I believe you'll find that to be encouraging and challenging to one another as you share your experience with the fast. So I want to look today, again, at some scripture that we began with a couple weeks ago, but we won't get to that passage in 1 Corinthians until the end. Um, So first, let's read our theme verse again, Hebrews 13, 3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. And of course, we have been connecting that idea with fervent unrelenting, passionate prayer for those who've suffered in our midst for too long. Uh, and Jenny Good kind of became the poster child uh, for this fast, if, if, I can, uh, if I can use that phrase. Uh, but I'm talking about kind of this righteous indignation we ought to be experiencing about those who are suffering in our midst And Jesus promised we would have suffering, but you understand Jesus was clearly talking about suffering persecution. There are things that come into our lives uh, that are of the devil that uh, that cause us to suffer, and those don't don't come from the hands of God, and we don't honor God by... We can honor God even through these circumstances, but there is victory that God has for us. I'm getting ahead of myself. We ought to reach a point, I think, when we ought to be offended at the presence of infirmity in members of the body. And I don't mean offended with those people. I mean offended on their behalf. Read this with me. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. Now he, Jesus, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. And she was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. 
But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Do you sense the indignation Jesus had when he encountered this woman who had been bound for 18 years? We're going to look a little more closely at some details in this passage before we move to the point I want to, make it, I want to tie into the next scripture. It was the custom of the Jews, clearly, to gather on the Sabbath to hear the word of God, to read, to receive teaching. And this is the legacy of the synagogue system that endures for us today, this emphasis, uh, the centrality of Scripture to our worship gathering. Jesus, whatever else the Pharisees and other leaders of the day thought of him, uh, was unanimously considered a teacher par excellence, and so he was afforded the opportunity to teach in, in, uh, in different synagogues from time to time on several occasions. And this Sabbath, he calls out this woman Scripture tells us that she had a spirit of infirmity. Now, this sounds like a demonic presence, doesn't it? And we know this wasn't an angel of infirmity. This was a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. This spiritual bondage manifests itself in some sort of severe arthritic condition that was so bad she was bent over and could in no way, that means even with help, she could not be made straight. It was literally a crippling condition. It doesn't say how old she was. Somehow I always picture an old lady, but it doesn't say that. It just says she'd been afflicted with this for 18 years. And uh, the first thing I want you to notice is that as Luke presents this episode, he calls it a spirit of infirmity. And Jesus himself, himself says also that Satan had had her bound for these nearly two decades. But, even though Luke records it as a spirit, Jesus calls it bound by Satan, this miracle is not referred to as a deliverance or the casting out of a demon. Did you notice that? Jesus, when he heals her, he does not address any spirit or demonic presence. He simply speaks to her, proclaiming her freedom from bondage. He lays his hands on her, and she is healed. Now, Brother Hagen, he wrote about this, and many of you have heard the story. He was, uh, he was talking about how, uh, uh, how certain demonic presences can manifest in sickness and how he was conducting a healing line, and he was praying for people. He's going down the line. He's laying his hands on them, and, and if you've ever been in a large meeting like that, sometimes he might pray for hundreds of people over the course of, 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 of a few minutes. He, keeps, he, keep, he moves fast. And so he's going to receive your healing, be healed in Jesus' name. And he gets to this person uh, who was complaining of a headache. And he starts, he says, be healed of your headache. 
receive your healing in Jesus' name. He says he opened his eyes, and he says this was this uh, uh, manifestation of the gift of discerning of spirits. He says, I could see what looked like an ugly little monkey sitting on this guy's shoulders, squeezing the man's head. And I realize what I'm dealing with here is, the, is a, the presence of a demonic spirit. And so instead of saying, receive your healing, I said, spirit of infirmity, spirit of headache. I cast you out and command you to leave this man. And that's when the man was healed. Now, I think that's very, very interesting and very, very useful. But the point is, uh, and, and I'm not disagreeing with that at all. We need to be led by the Spirit in every situation, even as we are praying for the sick. Well, I'm not, we figure, well, we're, we only cast out a demon if somebody is manifesting demonically. You think about the Gadarene demoniac running naked through the tombs, cutting himself with stones and scaring people away for miles. Uh, but sometimes a demonic presence will manifest itself as sickness. We don't need to sweat every single time somebody's, we're praying for them. What am I supposed to be doing here? Am I supposed to be healing a person? Am I supposed to be laying hands on them, anointing with oil, or should I be casting out a demon? You, if, if it's manifesting itself as sickness, as infirmity, you pray for the sick. You heal the sick. You declare healing. That's what you do. If in the midst of that, God reveals to you this is a spirit and you need to address the spirit, do it. In this case, it was a spirit, but Jesus didn't address the spirit. He addressed the infirmity, and when he did, the spirit had to leave. We don't need to overthink these things, do we? If a healing is needed, the manifestation uh, will take place regardless of what's at the root cause of it. And let's face it, sickness ultimately is all a manifestation of the power of the devil, and that's whose power Jesus came to destroy. Right? Now, since she was immediately made straight, it was natural that she would begin to glorify God. Uh, and here's where we, I guess we can uh, afford a little speculation without being dogmatic. What do you think the rest of the people in that synagogue were doing when she was made straight after 18 years of suffering in this condition? I strongly suspect that they were also glorifying God. I think things probably got a little animated in there in a hurry, don't you? And the leader of the synagogue has the audacity to pin Jesus to the wall on a legal issue. What you did this there was work, and we don't work on the Sabbath. It is audacious to a ridiculous degree because this woman was in his synagogue. And as he's saying, hey, at any time in the last 18 years, you could have come to me uh, Sunday through Friday and received your healing. This guy didn't have the power to heal her, did he? Apparently nobody else did. And I don't really think that's what he's saying. What he's really saying is, okay, Jesus, if you're going to heal, let people come to you. Didn't really say that, though. But I guess that's kind of his contention. If you've got the power to heal, and if you're of God, don't do it on the Sabbath. And, of course, uh, I think the problem is he's mad because he has lost control of the service. <laughs> and this is the first thing he thought of in terms of regaining control. Probably earlier in the service, he had scored big with his people by getting this popular local teacher to come and share the word at his synagogue. Look what I brought you. And uh, then Jesus up and heals this woman that they all knew, and suddenly we're off the program. And he's bothered by this. But Jesus, of course, sees straight through him. You're really going to call this work? You're going to call this a violation of Sabbath law? But you don't, 
begin to think like that when every Sabbath you go out there just like every other day and you untie your donkey, you let the ox out of its stall and you let them drink and then you lock them back up again. You loose your donkey, you loose your ox every Sabbath and that's not work, but when I loose this woman, this is a child of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham. She's been bound by Satan for 18 years straight, and you want me to wait one more day when today the healer is in this synagogue? No wonder the people cheered. Here's another important point. Again, he calls her this daughter of Abraham. This is an appeal to what she is entitled to because of the covenant she is in with God. Because she is a descendant of Abraham, she is a rightful inheritor of the covenant God made with Abraham and the covenant that God made with the children of Israel through Moses. Now, we looked at some of those things. We read some of those promises out of Deuteronomy not long ago at all. But in short, they, uh, as a people, uh, were to be blessed. No sickness, no lack, right? No bondage. This is not some random sick person that Jesus decided to bless with a healing. This is a woman to whom healing belongs. This is what I'm talking about. When Jesus sees that, he looks at her and says, 18 years is way too long, and this ends today. I can almost see Jesus doing this, thinking 18 years. A spirit has bound her for 18 years. Her? A daughter of Abraham? How dare Satan afflict a daughter of Abraham? The old not on my watch. Right? So quickly now, what Jesus did was heal the one who was afflicted by freeing her from the bondage of infirmity, and he did it because he was indignant at the very presence of the affliction. He was moved with compassion. Please understand this. When Jesus healed individuals, when he healed the multitudes, he did not stop in every case and say, Lord, is this one that you want healed? Is this one that you want healed? What is your will for this person? He healed them all because he recognized the source of affliction and he understood God's perfect will concerning healing. That again, he recognized that all sickness and disease are ultimately manifestations of the power of the devil. He looks at sickness. This is a judgment call. When people say Jesus never judged, he judged all the time. And this was clearly a judgment call. He looked at sickness in the people of God and said, this is not right. You never ever see him make well people sick. But in every case, sick people came to him. He healed them all. Am I belaboring this point? I hope not. I want you to see that our prayers, our declarations, need to be like those of Jesus. First of all, based on our uh, covenant relationship with God and linked to direct promises God has made to us. And secondly, that our attitude as we stand on these promises for ourselves and for others, needs to be bold, even indignant. But here's the mistake, and here's the misunderstanding from people outside sometimes. When I say indignant, I don't mean you get indignant with God. That's a stupid thing to do. You don't shake your fist at God and say, I'm being bold. You promised to do this, so do it. No, that's God looking at you and said, I gave it to you. Now go take it. Don't let anybody take it from you. You direct your indignance at the thief, not the giver. 
Now remember Peter's confession of the Christ. Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, there's been debate over the years, and a sharp debate between Catholics and Protestants over what is this rock, who is the rock, uh, on whom Jesus is going to build the church. And a lot of it has to do with the, you know, the name Peter, meaning rock. And really what it is, is I say to you, your name is rock, little rock. And upon this big rock, I will build my church. And what is the big rock? This Petra. It is the truth, the revealed truth that Jesus Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, with this word church, we've talked about this already in this series. This is the Greek word ekklesia, and this is the first time in Scripture Jesus uses this word. One of only two times, I think, that Jesus uses this word. And it is loaded with meaning. Of course, we call it the assembly or the called out ones. But uh, one of the meanings that is not often discussed, or at least it hasn't been Uh, when I've been paying attention, is that uh, that word in the Greek had a very, it was was really heavy with political implications. The assembly, the ecclesia, was, was, it wasn't everybody. It were, it was, uh, in this case, it would have been, uh, the best application would have been citizens with voting rights. People who could participate in the government. You know Rome wasn't a democracy, but they inherited a lot of democratic principles from Greek government, and they laid down some building blocks that became the foundation for future democratic societies. You had an emperor, but you also had people speaking in. You had a Roman Senate. You had laws being passed, and citizens had a voice in their government. Aliens did not. I say aliens. I don't mean Martians. I mean foreigners. Slaves did not. Free Roman citizens did. When he used that word, I will build my ecclesia, my assembly, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And their ears perked up because they're looking for what? They're looking for an earthly kingdom. And he's talking about a real assembly of real people. We as believers are full participants in the kingdom of God, but it is Christ himself who is the head. We'll talk about that more later, perhaps. I'm just pointing out the word ecclesia had this this political meaning. We have a voice in the church, but we answer to a king. This is not a democracy either, is it? Jesus is pointing, again, to a real assembly, real people who are going to participate together in a new society, a spiritual society called the kingdom of God. In this society, we can't dictate to the world how it's going to act, but within the kingdom, we are governed by it, and we can represent it, should represent it, with authority. And what does that mean? Well, he goes on to say that whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven, loose on earth, loose in heaven. We'll be talking about that next week. I need to get back to my original point today. I want to look... At this, our final scripture reference. 
But actually, before that, I want to I want to make two points. One is this: when it says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, shall not prevail against the church. The gates are symbolic of where plans are made and judgments are rendered. In the Old Testament, the gates, the city gates, is where the city elders met to make plans, war plans, discuss points of law, pass judgment on civil matters. The king would meet with uh, citizens and render judgment on matters and offer advice, hear complaints even. The gates were the place where the important business of the city took place. And uh, this verse is saying that all the plans... All the wisdom, all the judgments of hell will not overpower those who are called into the assembly Christ is building. Will not keep us from fulfilling our mission. Will not, in the end, stand against the plans and wisdom and judgments of God. I know it's a pretty picture when we think about the gates of hell not prevailing against us. And we used to even sing about, we'll go forth and kick in the gates of hell. We're not charging into hell to rescue people in hell. We're saying that the judgments and the power of hell and the power of the enemy are not going to prevail against us because God's wisdom is higher, God's judgments are pure, and his power is infinitely greater, right? So, this, uh, the second thing is this, that this assembly, this authority, this promise is for members only. I should have worn a members only jacket today as, a, as an illustration. Uh, those outside the church, what I mean by that is those outside the church don't get a say in how the church operates. Those outside the church, uh, outside of this society that represents the kingdom of God, that is the kingdom of God, uh, they don't get to pronounce judgment on the morals and the values that are based on the word of God. Only those in the assembly have a voice. And we are all baptized into one body by one spirit who leads us and guides us into all truth, and that eventually will produce unity. But do you see how important that is? We live in this, when I say society now, I'm talking about the West, America in particular. We live in a society where we just sort of lay down and let the world criticize us. Here's what's wrong with the church. Just stop your ears to that stuff. I'm not saying that there aren't some things we could do to make ourselves a little more attractive to society. I'm saying when they start passing judgment on our values, on what we say is sin, we should not even give it a second listen. They don't get a voice. They don't get a say. They are not born of the same spirit. Of course they're going to think differently. Their minds aren't renewed. We need to be praying for them, for their eyes to be opened. As you know, when Paul talked about this stuff, when I'm getting way off track now, but that's okay, just for a minute. When Paul would, was writing his letters, he said, you know, all these, these fornicators and, and uh, adulterers, and all these, these drunkards and thieves and, and everything else, he goes, and such were some of you. He's talking about the judgment falling on all these different sinners. He says, and you used to be like that. Don't forget. It's hard to imagine that people could be that wicked, but you used to be there too until you got saved. And their only hope, you're never going to get them to see the error of their ways without getting them to understand that God has set this all in motion and he himself defines what is good and what is evil. Now, now, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to read this long passage again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one, sorry, 
but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is he therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have a greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. When I see the word member mentioned so frequently, I can't help thinking about a couple of things. And one is the fact that he keeps saying members of the body rather than body parts. When I hear the phrase body parts, I don't think about my hand or my arm. I think about what happened when somebody was working for Russ Gulliford years ago, and I even remember who it was, but I won't name him. A lot of you would know him too. He was pumping out a, was it a septic tank or something at a gas station. He calls Russ, says, hey, I got this hose going, the pump's working fine, and it was clogged. So I pulled it out, and what was clogging it was an arm. And Russ is like, an arm of what? He says, an arm with like an elbow. So he says, Wait, don't do anything else. Call the police. They go out there and they tell them to keep pumping it. And they found both arms, both legs, uh, and torso. No hands, no head. They began to suspect a crime had been committed. <laughs> and they, 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 it, it gave them a clue. They had found hands in a shoebox by a river and and couldn't identify him because of the decomposition, but they were able to connect these hands to these other body parts. Somebody had been killed on some sort of gang deal, and his body was chopped up. Somebody threw it in the septic tank, hoping it would dissolve or something. Isn't that interesting? I'm sorry. It's almost lunchtime. But when you come across an arm or a foot, I don't think about that as part of the body. That's a, that's a body part. And it's either dead or dying. But when I see a foot that's attached to a leg, that's attached to a torso with all the limbs and a head, that foot is a part of the body. That is a member of the body. Right? So it's significant that he keeps saying this. Members of the body. Members of the body. Member of the body. You are members individually of the body of Christ. The other thing I think about when I keep seeing that word member is church membership. We started this series talking about how the local church really is the best representation of the body of Christ at large. Yes, there is a church universal and triumphant. There is the, brother, the brotherhood of the family of God. But the church, the local church, is a concrete, 
visible expression of the body, and we absolutely need to be a part of it, and the world absolutely needs to see it. So here's what I am suggesting. Here's what I'm offering. Don't just attend this church. Join this church. Become a member. Why? Will it get you more saved? No. Is there a Bible verse that commands it? No. But if you are a believer and you take your faith seriously, you have to arrive at the conclusion that we are called to do, like the account I read last week of Chuck Colson and and Harold Hughes, where we express our firm commitment to one another. You are called not just to love Jesus and follow Jesus, but to commit yourself to the good of the body. And church membership is a visible, tangible, again, concrete way of expressing this commitment. Does it have to be this church? Yes. No. It, <laughs> but it might as well be. Let me tell you what you can find. You can find a church 10 times this size, and it will have 10 times as many messed up people in it. I'm serious about this. There are churches, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, there are some great churches even in our area. I happen to believe this is the best. Of course I'm biased. But here's the deal. In every case, the longer you stay at a church and the more involved you get in the church, not only are you going to feel more connected and more uh, valuable, but you are also going to be, if we're not careful, a little more jaded. Because the, the more deeply you get involved, the more messed up stuff you see. You understand what I'm saying? You, can, you really get to see some of the ugliness. But it is everywhere. You think, wow, I came to church with a lot of messed up people and Boy, even the leadership had their issues. And then you go, I went to this other church. First time there, I knew this was completely different. Yeah, but you don't know anybody yet. It's there everywhere. So we need to find a place where we can plug in and say, me, even with my messed upness, and if you are that one in a million individuals who's not messed up at all, we need you more than anybody to show us how not to be messed up, right? Say, that's you? (laughs) Praise the Lord. We, we really need each other to get unmessed up. This is how God ministers to us, through one another. But we can really only do that. Just picture it's like, you know, the, 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 my finger doesn't supply its own blood. It has to be connected to a wrist and an arm and a shoulder all the way back to the heart. And everything flowing through Every, it's all connected. Everything supports everything else. And how does the body work? By that which every part supplies. Okay. Uh, we're called to live the gospel and preach the gospel. And clearly, clearly from Scripture, uh, we are called to do that as part of a community of believers. As an assembly of members of the same body committed to one another, we are called to do this as a church. Now, you have a week to decide. I know probably most of you are already members. Listen, we used to do, um, uh, first of all, let me tell you this. Membership requirements are pretty simple. You have to agree with our tenets of faith. And there are two CDs 
that we ask you to listen to, and there's a workbook, Getting a Grip on the Basics, that we ask you to work through. It's very simple. It's just a very basic uh, outline of, of what we believe. And you have to just sign a form saying, yes, I agree, and I'm committed to the, uh, supporting this church with my time, talents, and resources. Presto, you're a member. Uh, what we used to do uh, is uh, every year we had membership renewal. Stopped doing that quite a while ago because, and Dad made this observation, and it's, it's absolutely correct. You know, people are going to, they're going to let you know if they're still interested in being a member. That just kind of like how people vote with their feet. You know, it ultimately doesn't mean the fact that you sign a form saying something doesn't mean you're going to be here every Sunday, that you're going to be faithful, whatever. But I do think, I'm, I'm coming around to the idea that it is important uh, to take stock of this again and remind ourselves that we are committed to one another. Um, so next week, uh, we're going to do something called impact membership. If you've been here long enough to know this church is for you, and you want to decide, I want to be a member, we will recognize you and celebrate with you and call you a member. And you can take the CDs and workbook home. Kind of a member on credit. (laughs) Current members, next week is your opportunity to re-up. Again, we used to ask for this annually. We may do that again, but... uh, the idea of that was to avoid inflated membership roles. You know, you've known people, I'm sure, who, uh, my family and I have been part of the such-and-such church for, uh, for 50 years, and they haven't been once in 50 years, but that's where their membership is, and you look at the membership roles, we've got 800 people uh, as members of this church, and our average Sunday attendance is 32. Uh, let's, let's, uh, our, our membership role should be our active membership role, so we just kind of like to keep it honest, right? Uh, but we'll have a form you can fill out next Sunday that'll indicate, I want to become a member of Living Word. I want to renew my membership. And I want you to treat this as not just, yep, I'm signing up again, but I'm reaffirming my commitment to you. Not to me, to one another, to where God has placed you at this time. And then you know what? We will all celebrate as a body. I'm excited about it. And praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. While I warn you that those of you who desire to no longer be Living Word members, to detach from the body, will also have a ceremony where we break with you and pronounce a curse upon your house. <laughs> I'm totally kidding, but I probably shouldn't be uh, because I've heard too many horror stories of churches and other gatherings who do precisely that. Uh, I'm not just talking about weirdos. There was a very well-known cult in Champaign-Urbana 30, 40 years ago that, that was very, unfortunately, very well-known for doing that. You leave here, and this bad stuff's going to happen, and yada, yada. But I know, I'm thinking of one very specific one, Arama Church, when people left for very valid reasons. Uh, the pastor would say, if you run into this person in town, don't talk to him. Don't have a conversation with him. All they're going to do is poison your mind. They're poisoned. They've already been poisoned by the devil. We don't play that here. That is, that's closer than anything else to what Scientology does. They, they, they break with people and then pronounce, oh, this person, is, uh, this person is poison, this person isn't to be communicated with, and they break off. We don't do that. We're, huh? Right. No shunning. Uh, but I'm also not encouraging you to do that. I'm not just saying, eh, take off, we're still going to love you, still going to pray for you, still going to love you. We've demonstrated that here in this church recently, okay? But it's better 
to link up, stay linked up to a local body. This is where you are. This is where I believe God called you. I think you can see God's doing something uh, in our midst. This is a good place to be, good place to live out this commitment. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.